0: stopping you You, you. from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? You, you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion on this new day and a new year. Wow. 2024, amazing. Well, uh, on today's program, like every program, we are going to be uh, answering questions from people who are not necessarily Catholic but want to know more about the Catholic faith. So, now uh, we're not, we're not going not to be taking any calls today. Uh, we are bringing you a special mailbag program. We've received a number of emails over the past couple of weeks. Hopefully, we can get some of these uh, taken care of today. And that would be a fantastic thing. Uh, So we are with Charles Beery, our producer. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. how are you today? Well, I'm very good, and happy Feast Day as well. It's it's a new year, and it's a Feast Day.
1: Mary, the Mother of God.
0: Fantastic. I like that Feast Day. Do you have any uh, New Year's resolutions to get us started?
1: Uh, Let's see. Lose weight, gain IQ points, cure cancer, save the world, and go
0: to heaven. Love it. (laughs) Not necessarily in that order. <laughs> right. let's, put the, let's put the heaven part up a little, little right. bit higher. Absolutely. So uh, we're going to lead off with this question. It's actually very timely. This is from Tanner. Dr. Anders, I'm searching for a devotion I can set myself to for the new year. The aspect of the Catholic faith that speaks to me the most is the idea and pursuit of wisdom is there such thing as a devotion to wisdom and how can I find one and how can I make it my own and again that's from Tanner
1: um yeah there is um, uh, uh, you know how about you can have a devotion to to Saint Sophia the martyr oh right whose uh, whose name means wisdom right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, uh, you could always cultivate a devotion to St. Thomas Aquinas, yes. who who wrote voluminously about wisdom and, and understood his own theological project as being aimed at the pursuit of wisdom. Some of Thomas's prayers that he composed, if you get a hold of the, of the prayers written by St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, they're really ordered to uh, asking from God— Uh, uh, a sound judgment and reason, holiness of life, uh, uh, clarity of thought, that kind of thing. So that would be another excellent way to go.
0: Very good. So, Tanner, we hope that's helpful for you and uh, your devotion to wisdom. I think it's very cool. Here's one now from Samantha. I am a recent convert from being evangelical, but I've never had a daily prayer life. Are there any prayers you could recommend that I take up in the new year to help me grow spiritually? Again, that's from Samantha. Yeah, Samantha,
1: thanks. I really appreciate the question. So uh, one prayer that every Catholic should pray every day is the Our Father, or what you might have learned uh, as the Lord's Prayer in in Protestant land. Uh, Christ suggests that that is a daily prayer. We pray, give us this day our daily bread. Um, we pray that every day at Mass, of course, as well. So that that's a great that's a great place to start. Of course, the Hail Mary is a tried and true favorite for Latin Catholics. Uh, uh, one devotion that combines the Our Father and the Hail Mary uh, quite effectively is, of course, the devotion to the Rosary. So that's uh, that's a very popular one. Probably the most popular prayer in the Latin Rite of the Catholic Church to be prayed daily. Um, if you are of a liturgical frame of mind, you might look into the Divine Office, which is the daily prayer, the liturgical prayer of the Church, uh, that priests pray, that religious pray, and the laity are all invited to pray, so go investigate the Divine Office. Um, but really, uh, the sky is the limit, quite quite literally, on, on devotion. So there are so many ways, there are different modalities of, of prayer, of, of devotion, of trying ways to grow closer to our Lord. Uh, I encourage you to spend the rest of your life getting acquainted with all of them, and, and you take what is good and helpful, and... Uh, You know, if something doesn't speak to you, you pass on to the next one.
0: Our producer, Charles, uh, points out that the Jesus Prayer is very (laughs) popular if you are uh, an Eastern Rite Catholic. That is correct. Okay, very good. Samantha, some great ideas for you there. Hope that uh, gets your 2024 off to a roaring start. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We're doing a special mailbag program on this New Year's Day. Here's one that came in a couple of weeks ago from Jonathan. Dr. Anders, can you recommend a good one-volume history of the world, ideally something accessible. Thanks, Jonathan. Well, that's heavens. A, kind of a big topic.
1: One-volume history of the world. Okay, so unfortunately, most of the books that I know that tackle that kind of global history uh-huh. are written... From a distinctly anti-Christian, anti-Catholic point of view, Ooh. right? It's not—it's not a genre of literature that I've known many Catholic writers to take up. Um, uh, it is, however, a, a, a sort of what's global history is—a is a is a, uh, is a kind of a, an increasingly popular form of historical writing. Mm-hmm. There was a book, and I'll, I'm going to mention the name, but in doing so, I really have to add a caveat that the the author is a, a relativist. I mean, he's an avowed, openly you know, admits to being a relativist and atheist, uh, no friend of Catholicism at all. But his his book ha- had kind of a worldwide smash hit success. It's it, well written prose, but philosophically it wouldn't accord with Catholicism, and that would be um, Yuval Noah Harari's book *Sapiens*, which was a, a history of the human race from you know basically from from, uh, you know, prehistoric times to the present. Okay. Um, it's approachable and readable, but again, like I say, it's uh, just, you know, caveat emptor. It's, it's definitely not a pro-Catholic book
0: at all. Very good. Appreciate uh, your email. Here's a, a quick one now from uh, Emmanuel. What is the role of the cardinal virtues in moral judgment?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, The role of the cardinal virtues is absolutely essential in moral judgment. Um, And, in fact, the Catholic position is that with the theological virtues, which are infused, obviously, supernaturally, faith, hope, and charity, one also receives, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, an infusion, that is a supernatural endowment, with the cardinal virtues, so justice and uh, prudence and temperance and fortitude. Mm -hmm. Um, Justice and prudence, uh, they're two cardinal virtues, are without which it's impossible to make a good moral judgment. I mean, prudence is the virtue— of, of making the correct, the concrete choice in the particular moment that you find yourself in. I mean, it's one thing to have an abstract principle like thou shalt not kill or You shalt not lie or don't commit adultery. It's another thing to actually be able to make prudent judgments in the here and now about how to live out that ethic practically. And that, 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 that virtue justice, I mean, uh, of prudence is what enables us to do that. Um, that justice is the virtue of, of knowing what we owe another human being either either individually or collectively. Uh-huh. So you literally can't make a good moral judgment about the life of your neighbor without having the virtue of justice. Okay.
0: Well, I appreciate that. Uh, Emmanuel, thank you so much uh, for your question. We're doing a special edition of Call to Communion today. It's a mailbag program, so we're not going to be taking your calls, but we are going to be answering a whole bunch of emails that have come in over the last couple of weeks. If you would like to send us an email for a future show, here's the address, ctc at ewtn.com. Or if you'd rather spell it out, call to communion at ewtn.com. Either one will get the email to us. Back in a moment for lots more, call to communion. Thanks for joining us on this New Year's Day. And please have a very blessed and happy new year from all of us at EWTN. It is called a Communion with Dr. David Andrews. We're taking your mailbag questions today. This would be things that you have emailed to us. In, uh, in a couple of cases, we're going to probably throw in a few uh, YouTube and Facebook questions that we've received over the past couple of days. Again, if you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address ctc at ewtn.com. One of those social media questions came in from John watching us on YouTube. This will be one of your favorites, David. How did Dr. Andrews start working for EWTN?
1: Oh, in in the most unlikely way possible <laughs> in the most unlikely way possible. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama <clears throat> and uh, in a house that is ironically not five miles from the network. but uh, until I was 33 years old, I had no idea that EWTN existed. Wow. Now before the network was founded, the location of the present network is also the previous location of the monastery, Mother Angelica's uh, community of, uh, of, uh, of Franciscan sisters. Uh, that monastery was, oh, about, I don't know, a quarter of a mile away <clears throat> from a, uh, a, a swim and tennis club that my family used to frequent when I was a child. And the only memory I have of Mother Angelica or the nuns was once when I was probably maybe I don't know eight years old. We had gone swimming and we had left the club and we're driving down Old Leeds Road where the network is located. And I remember looking out my window and seeing these women in funny clothes. And I was a Protestant kid. I didn't really have a category for nuns. And I remember asking my mother, "Who who are those women in funny clothes?" And uh, my mom said, "Oh, those are you know those are Catholic nuns." But you know the tone of the answer was like, "Okay, roll them up, lock the doors. Those dangerous Catholics. We're gonna <laughs> stay away from them." You know, it, it, and then they passed from my memory. <clears throat> And for 30 years, I had forgotten that they existed or there any connection out in Irondale. Um, I I went to uh, graduate school in the Midwest, earned my Ph.D. in religious studies from the University of Iowa. I came back to Birmingham to finish my dissertation, and I got got into the business of education here in Birmingham. Uh, But then I became Catholic while I was in Birmingham. And in the process of transitioning to Catholicism, I, 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 I needed to get some questions answered that I couldn't get answered from a book. And I had read all the books but I wanted to talk to some live people. And I, I discovered EW10 Radio. I didn't know that it was EW10 that I had discovered. I just found a Catholic radio station, local Catholic radio station, and learned about a show called uh, uh, The Journey Home, and a host named Marcus Grodi, and an organization called The Coming Home Network. And I figured out that The Coming Home Network existed to help Protestants become Catholics, and that in particular, Marcus had a heart for people who were theologians, clergy, seminary professors, that sort of thing. So I recognized that that was speaking to me and to my need. And I said, if, if I'm going to find a former Protestant who has become Catholic, um, this seems like a good place to start. So I, I called the Coming Home Network, which is located in Ohio, and I said, I'm David Anders, and I live in Birmingham, Alabama, and I'm looking for a Protestant who has become Catholic. Can you, can you hook me up with somebody in Birmingham? And of course, you know, they... they stifled the laughter on the other side of the phone because <laughs> the number of people they could hook me up with in Birmingham was mammoth. Oh, yeah. And uh, uh, the person I was speaking to at the network said, uh, well, have you ever heard of EWTN? I said, no, I've never heard of it. Don't know anything about EWTN. Well, they gave me the address, and they found a contact from me out here, uh, a, a former Methodist ministry who would become Catholic and was working for the network, and they said, uh, well, he'll meet you out here at this time. And and so I made my way to EWTN to, to meet this fellow, and we met at the St. Michael Hall, which is right outside the chapel. There's a, a hall with a statue of St. Michael, and there's some confessionals out there. And the and confessionals are rather large and kind of, uh, kind of imposing, right? And as a Protestant kid looking at them, I, I saw them, and I thought, you know, they, they look like, kind of like medieval Iron Maidens. They have a sort <laughs> of intimidating, you know, look to them. And we had our conversation. It was very nice. <clears throat> then I went on my way, and I did eventually become Catholic. Um, after becoming Catholic, initially my wife was not really excited about my Catholicism. She changed her tune eventually, but she wasn't excited about it and didn't like the idea of me going to confession, particularly on a Saturday when she wanted to have me home with her and the kids. So I needed to find a place to go to confession on a regular basis. And then, it re- then I remembered, oh, there's that place out in Irondale, that EWTN place where they had those confessionals. I wonder if they hear confessions during the week And and lo and behold, the Franciscans, the priests that live out here at the network in their their friary, do in fact hear confessions on a daily basis. So I started coming to confession at EWTN during the week so I could sneak out during my lunch hour without causing a ruckus at home. And I got to know some of the friars. Then I figured out that EWTN had a choir, and they had a mass choir that would sing during the mass after I became Catholic. I used to be a singer back in the day when I was in high school and college. I sang tenor, and I thought, well, I wonder if they need a tenor. And uh, and I went and tried out for the choir, and uh, and the choir director graciously condescended to let me join. (laughs) You know, I was kind of the tail end of the choir, but they let me in, you know, at the last minute. And I started singing next to, well, you know, sort of in the vicinity of an alto named Adrian Price, (laughs) who happened to be married to Tom Price, across from whom I'm sitting right now. And we got to know the prices, my wife and I did. And, uh, and Adrian suggested to me one day, you know, you should really be a guest on The Journey Home, Marcus's show. I said, well, that's an interesting idea. you know. And she called Marcus and said, have this guy on your show. And that was 2010. And so I was a guest on The Journey Home with Marcus. And that show went down fairly well, and it led to some invitations to do some more stuff. And the Apostolate Catholic Answers, that had been a big help to me when I was becoming Catholic, reached out and asked if I would fill in as a guest uh, on their show in a, in a broadcast for non-Catholics, and I, I did that. and the first broadcast we did was from uh, Studio Two here at EWTN, and Tom Price engineered the show from the Birmingham side. Now, it's of course it's pr- it's produced in San Diego, but, mm-hmm. but Tom was with me in the studio, and and so and that that became kind of a semi-regular gig. Every once in a while, Catholic answers would call up, and then Tom and I would go sit in the studio, and he'd run the board, and and I'd answer questions. And we started doing that more and more frequently. And then I think it was in 2012, uh, Tom called me and said, would you like to be a, a guest or a regular host on EWTN's Open Line? And, uh, and I thought about that for about a week or two, and then said, I think that'd be a great opportunity. And we started doing Open Line, did that for two years, I think, and then called the Communion, which is a dedicated show doing nothing but answering the questions of non-Catholics, came on the air in September of 2000. Fourteen. So we just, you know, we're 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 into our our tenth year yes. of this uh, yes. of this program. So that's the that's the story. So when people say, "How do you go to work for Catholic Radio?" I say, "It's no problem. What you do is go get a PhD in religious studies, move five miles away from the lo- world's largest religious broadcaster, and then." Get a job singing in the choir next to the program director's wife. It's just a piece of cake, you know. <laughs> Nothing
0: to it. Nothing a, to a, it. A well-traveled road. Right, exactly. Very good. Well, uh, thanks so much for your question, and, and I knew you would enjoy that as kind of a, a jumping-off point here. Now, I need to ask you a question. Do you prefer the pronunciation Dionysus, Dionysus? What's the right word here? We're uh, you, speaking of you, al- you, of you, Alexandria. Um You say tomato, I say tomato. So it doesn't matter. I don't care. Very good. This question then is from Adam. Dr. Anders, can you talk about why Dionysus of Alexandria was considered Pope of Alexandria? Was he actually a pope, as in the Pope of Rome? This Dionysus of Alexandria is different from Pope Dionysus of Rome, correct? I'm confused as to whether Dionysus of Alexandria was an official pope of the Church. Thanks, Adam.
1: Okay, thanks. I, I appreciate the question. Um, in in the Coptic Church, the title for the Patriarch of Alexandria is Pope. Ah, okay. Right. So we we call the Bishop of Rome the Pope, um, but before uh, the Bishop of Rome's title became more or less unique to the Bishop of Rome in mm-hmm. the West, the word Pope was used with respect to other other patriarchs, and it still is used for the Patriarch of Alexandria.
0: Okay. Well, very good. And thank you so much uh, for your email. Here's one. This is an anonymous question now. I am a Catholic married man. Unfortunately, my wife miscarried some three weeks ago, requiring a and c Our doctor advised her to go through one healthy cycle before we try it again. She asked me if we were able to, you know, the marital act there, using preventive measures, since it was for health reasons. Well, I didn't know the answer to that. Was assuming that we would just have to wait it out instead. I thought you might know the church's official stance on this situation. Thanks, anonymous.
1: Yeah, thank you. I Appreciate the question. So, in your situation, um, the 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 rational measures that you can take to avoid pregnancy are twofold. You can abstain from sexual relations. Mm-hmm or you can, you can practice natural family planning, which is to abstain from sexual relations specifically during the time of the month when your wife will be fertile, right? But in either case, it's a form of abstention, Okay. right? Uh, what you can't do is use any form of contraception, uh, which is to say, you know, intentionally engaging in the marital act uh, in a way that would be intrinsically not open to the possibility of conception, right?
0: Um, that's ruled out. Okay. Appreciate that. Thanks for your anonymous email. It's called Communion here on EWTN on this New Year's Day, doing a bunch of uh, questions that we've received uh, in the email uh, category there on our mailbag program today. This one is from MC. MC says, Dr. Anders... I believe I heard you once say that Luther believed that our immoderate desires were sin, and that Catholics believe it's sinful only when acting on those desires, and that resistance is meritorious. So, how does that square up with scriptures such as Matthew five twenty eight? Thanks, MC. Well, let's pull up Matthew five Let's. Because
1: I don't have that committed to memory, that particular verse. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. Okay, that's what I figured it was. If you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery. Okay, well... Notice that the that the verb there, looking at a woman, to lust after her. Mm. That I, that implies intention. Sure does. All right. The intention is sinful. All right. The intention is sinful. Um, it's not sinful to have uh, an immoderate desire. It is sinful to act on that immoderate desire by intention. And in this case, a man. You know, it's like say, take a guy who who. Uh, who uh, decides to contemplate pornography? For example, yeah, that's a very intentional act. That's a mm-hmm. very intentional act. It doesn't mm-hmm. happen by accident. Okay, um, that's different from let's say you know, a uh, kid is walking down the street and and he looks up and there's a billboard of something that's quasi pornographic that he didn't intend to look at and he quickly averts his eyes. Well, they may both have seen similar images, but the question of intention
0: differs entirely between the two acts. Very good. MC, thanks so much for your email. Here's one now from Hannah, who says, Dr. Anders, where does grace end and free will begin? Is it an act of grace to accept an offer of grace? I would like to pray for the salvation of my loved ones, but if their free will, by definition, can't be coerced then what am I asking for? Am I just asking God to be a little more pushy (laughs) in his offer of saving grace for them? Thanks for your help. Hannah.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, the, uh, the language that you used of grace ending and free will beginning, I think misconstrues the relationship between grace and free will. The Catholic position is that it is grace that enables free will, right? So that without grace, you are actually bound in your will. To a mm. certain extent. Okay. Right. You you, right. you don't have it within your power to consistently will the moral good apart from grace. When you when you have grace, you now have the freedom to choose the moral good. Uh, okay. right? grace empowers your free act of virtue. And so the two are, are coextensive with one another. They're not they're not in opposition in any way. Um, and the more grace you have, the freer your actions become. That's literally the Catholic position. The more okay. grace you have, the freer your actions become. And it's easy to see in the extreme case. So think, for example, about, um, say, the drug addict. Uh, the serious drug addict really is not free at all. He, he or she is almost utterly bound by this obsessive passion to, to do drugs, and he's really not free to stop that obsession. Um, at the other end of the extreme, take the saint, for whom the thought of some Enormity, some act of whether it be drug abuse or you know any kind of horrific uh, uh, sinful act, is completely unpalatable to them, and so they're not constrained by the Holy Spirit not to will evil. Right? They just have no desire to will evil. Yeah. And uh, and whereas they're they're utterly free in their pursuit of of uh, of the rational good that we call virtue.
0: Okay. Appreciate that. It is called a communion, our special mailbag edition on New Year's Day here on EWTN Radio. This question now, this is from an anonymous emailer. Dr. Anders, did the first Jewish Christians continue to practice Judaism also and offer sacrifice in the temple until it was destroyed in 70 AD? Or did they cease functioning in that capacity when they became Christians?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. Um, absolutely. Uh, unambiguously, the earliest Christians, Jewish Christians, continued to practice Judaism. Really? Yes. They worshiped in the temple, they would have participated in temple sacrifices, they, they observed the Sabbath, uh, they observed the laws of Kashrut, the dietary rules, all the rest of it. Absolutely, they did that. And, uh, and it became a point of controversy, because when Gentile Christians joined the movement, it, it, it raised the question, do Gentile Christians also have to practice Judaism? in order to be followers of Jesus. And there was a significant movement, a significant party within early Christianity that answered that in the affirmative, particularly around Jerusalem and in company with James. There was a group of uh, people—Paul calls them Judaizers, we call them Judaizers today— that said, yeah, to be a Christian you must follow the law of Moses in all of its respects, including circumcision— um, St. Paul was the great champion of Gentile freedom and argued, no, the Gentiles don't have to follow the law of Moses, but there was never a question in there about the Jews following the law of Moses. The Jewish Christians continued to do that. Um, and Paul said, no, they don't have to follow the law of Moses, and, and they actually ended up having a church council about this question. Hmm. Um, and uh, in Acts chapter 15 recounts it, and they ruled that, no, Gentiles don't have to follow the law. But uh, there's, there's a, a pr- pretty substantial literature on, on this question <laughs> A lot of history has been written about it. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a title by a Jewish scholar named Pamela Eisenbaum that is—it's um, kind of a—it's a tongue-in-cheek title. The title of her book is Paul Was Not a Christian. <laughs> and what she means by that is that at this time of Christian history that Judaism and something called Christianity as a distinct religion
0: was that that wasn't in the mind of the early Christians they saw themselves as
1: Jews worshiping the Jewish
0: Messiah wow and uh, thank you so much for your anonymous email we're going to get to lots more in the second half of our program including some emails that are a little bit long to do on our regular live program but we have a little more time to stretch out and answer those longer emails we're going to do that in just just a few moments right here on EWTN's Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. A blessed 2024 to you from all of us here at EWTN and our program here, Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders. Not taking your phone calls today, we are answering some emails we've received over the past couple of weeks, including this longer one that we have time to answer today. This is from Sam. Sam says Protestants don't reject John 6. What we reject is the Catholic interpretation of it as if it were literal. We see that to eat the Lord's f- flesh and drink his blood is to believe in him, because, quote, to believe or to believe into is to receive. To eat his flesh is to receive by faith all that he did in giving his body for us, and to drink his blood is to receive by faith. All that he accomplished in shedding his blood for us. Verses, verse 47 of John 6 says, he who believes has eternal life. Furthermore, in verse 63 it says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing the words which I have spoken to you, are spirit and our life. Any thoughts there about that from Sam?
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, I have never said that Protestants reject John 6. You've never heard that come out of my mouth. Maybe some Catholics some places said that. I've certainly never said that. Um, Your depiction of the Protestant perspective is really true only of a one wing of Protestantism, the, the, the Zwingli-est, Zwinglian interpretation of John chapter 6, okay. clearly wasn't Luther's interpretation. So Luther, as I'm sure you knew, was a very firm believer in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. In fact, he made that a uh, a, a dividing point between him and, and Zwingli, and, and refused to make common calls with Ulrich Zwingli because Zwingli denied what, what Luther took to be the, the orthodox position. Luther once said that on the matter of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, that even if Scripture itself were silent on the question, and this is Luther speaking now, even if Christia had been silent, if, if Scripture had been silent, that it would be foolhardy to reject a doctrine universally held everywhere throughout the world for 1,500 years. So L- Luther, who, who didn't have very many good things to say about tradition, uh, in this one case recognized that tradition was an overwhelming witness to the truth of the doctrine of the real presence, and on that, as well as on the basis of Scripture, rejected the, the Zwinglian uh, symbolic interpretation of the Eucharist. Now, um, John Calvin, who, uh, of course, was probably the most uh, erudite theologian of the 16th century and, and whose influence in, uh, in the, the Reformed wing of Christianity is unparalleled, took a kind of middling point of view between Zwingli and Luther. While while Calvin denied that Christ was locally present in the Eucharist, so he, he would have rejected things like Eucharistic adoration, he was adamant that Holy Communion involves, and I quote Calvin, a substantial partaking of the body and blood of the Lord. He used the word substance. And Calvin's view that upon the act of Holy Communion, those that receive the the, uh, the sacrament in faith, and that for him was the determining factor if one uh-huh. receives it in faith, then through the medium of the Holy Spirit, God causes two things that are separate in space and time, namely the physical body of Christ and the body of the believer, to become united in a mystical way. And so, even though that's a little bit hard to wrap your head around, for Calvin, the, the Eucharist did absolutely involve partaking substantially of Christ's physical body and blood. Right, Not in the mode of transubstantiation, mm-hmm. but it would be entirely false to suggest that Calvin thought that the Eucharist was merely symbolic, uh, utter, utterly false. Um, John Williamson Nevin, 19th century American uh, Reformed theologian uh, of the Mercersburg School of Theology, an associate of, of Philip Schaff. most people know Schaff because of his multi-volume uh, Church history. That's the version of the Church Fathers that most people read, Catholics and Protestants. John Williamson Nevin wrote a fantastic book on the Calvinist doctrine of the Eucharist called... Uh, the mystical presence, all about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist, as understood by the Reformed tradition. So, the the way you've caricatured Protestantism, I, I think, is uh, is true only of one wing of Protestantism. It's clearly not true of the Lutheran tradition. It's not true of the Calvinist wing of the Reformed tradition. Uh, but it is you have taken the the Zwinglian point of view, and uh, and you know Luther and Calvin would testify against you, right? Before you even get to the Catholic faith on this. Um, so the, the idea that, you know, in John 6, Jesus says, well, the flesh counts for nothing, it's the spirit that gives life. If, if you take that to mean that, um, that the, the, the Apostle is rejecting any sort of contact with the physical, or the, or I should say the substantial body of Christ as being necessary for salvation, then you vitiate the whole Incarnation. Because in John chapter 1, the same apostle writes that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Mm. So the enfleshment of the Word is not something contrary to the power of the Spirit. Rather, the power of the Spirit here is what gives uh, the—is what empowers the act of faith in such a mystery, and— uh, it's what renders such a miracle possible, that we can have the real presence of Christ, that we can have the Incarnation, is made possible by the power of the Spirit. It's not meant to be a principle that gnostically separates spirit from matter, the way you seem to suggest. Um, in your mind, the, the act of believing is, is the operative act that, that, that brings the contact with, between the believer and Christ. Catholics certainly don't deny that. Catholics certainly don't deny that. Um, In fact, we understand the sacraments to be sacraments of faith, sacramenta fide, to quote St. Thomas, that the sacraments are visible protestations of the faith that we confess. The place where you and I would differ, where you and Catholics would differ, is that um, while faith is necessary for the fruitful reception of the Mm sacrament— Um, the Catholic position is that that even an unbeliever could superstitiously receive the substantial presence of Christ in the Eucharist, right? Now, for the Calvinists, that's not true. The unbeliever receives only bread and wine. For the Catholic, the unbeliever would receive the substantial body of, and blood of Christ in the Holy Communion, but to no effect. It would not work within him a, uh, any kind of spiritual transformation, but would in fact be a sacrilegious communion. Now, I would say that th- these kinds of differences in theology cannot ultimately be settled by reference to John 6, because the, the apostle writes in what is obviously a very enigmatic fashion. And so if if John 6 were the only thing that we had to go on, its interpretation would be ambiguous, as all Scripture is ambiguous. There's any passage of Scripture can be made to say anything that the interpreter wants to say, ultimately. The question is, what's a plausible interpretation given John 6's situation in the 1st century and its history of interpretation over 2,000 years. And this is where I think Luther got something right, that you cannot abstract the Bible, including John 6, from the Christian community, either in the 1st century or today, and expect to understand it. When John wrote his epistle, excuse me, when he wrote his gospel, he wrote to people who were already practicing the sacraments. I mean, the Eucharist predates the gospel of John by probably 70 years. Hmm. So there's a 70-year history of Eucharistic worship before there was ever a John's Gospel. When John writes, he writes to people who were in the second and third generation of the Christian faith and had been practicing the Eucharist collectively for, you know, for for 70 years. They already had a conception of what it meant. And so he is able to write enigmatically. That's why he he doesn't explicitly mention the Eucharist in this passage. I mean, we, we all read it and assume he's talking about the Eucharist, because he speaks about partaking of the body and blood of Christ and eating and drinking. And we go, oh, well, we know what was going on in the first century. That must be a reference to the Eucharist. That's a veiled way, an enigmatic way of referencing the Eucharist. But we're we're importing our knowledge of early Christianity, in other words, what we know from sacred tradition, to make that judgment. You follow me? I do. Okay. Yeah. So, if you're going to if you're going to advert to what you know about the context of the Gospel of John to affect its interpretation, then we must also say what did the early recipients of John's Gospel think he meant? How was John's Gospel received in Christian antiquity? And here's where Luther is right for two thousand years throughout the world, uh, in every place except for the Protestant Reformation of the Zwinglian type. All Christians understood Christ to be speaking of his substantial presence. And to to def, and, and defections from that came typically from the Gnostic camp, which is why the question of Christ's real presence in the Eucharist was for Ignatius of Antioch in, say, the year 100, a, a key determinant of whether a person was Orthodox or a Docetist. See, the Docetists denied the Incarnation, uh-huh. and they denied the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. So for St. Ignatius of Antioch, if The way you could smoke out a docetist was, what do they think about the Eucharist? If they deny that he's really present in the Eucharist, then, uh, then they're not of us. They're not, they're not among us. They don't hold the apostolic faith.
0: All right. Sam, we hope that's helpful for you and uh, explaining things a little bit better. And thank you so much uh, for your email today. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Uh, we have about a $50 word coming up here in about a sentence or so. So be, be ready for that big word. This is from Pete, who says, My weekday is incomplete without your insight and erudite explanations. Very kind of him. Can you please give a brief history of the concept of Abjuration of heresy. I believe in contemporary times this is completed in the confessional before conversion. Can you expand on this, please?
1: Um. You mean are we talking about are we talking about uh, uh, a person renouncing
0: their heresy? Abjuration. I'm not familiar with the word. I'm being, being quite honest yeah, with you I, here. Well,
1: I, I think he must be talking about renouncing heresy uh-huh. right okay. in front of the church's tribunal. Right? Okay. Um, so in terms of the history of it, let I'm, me I'm rack my brains for a second. Um, I mean, there have been schisms and heresies in Christian faith from the very beginning, and many of Paul's epistles, of course, were written to counteract false understandings of the Christian faith. And he admonished people to get back on board with, uh, with, with Orthodox Christianity. And, and the idea of renouncing one's false beliefs and joining oneself to the Catholic faith, I mean, has always been part of uh, the Christian tradition. In terms of the context, uh, you know, there is a canonical crime of heresy, that I could commit. It's possible for I could commit it, Tom could commit it, and that is that is defined as the obstinate persistence in a belief that has been ruled out officially by the magisterium. So if I deny a dogma that has been defined by the Church obstinately, with full understanding, sort of not under coercion, and I understand what I'm doing, that's the canonical crime of heresy. Um, now, the uh, the solution to that is repentance. And so that it would be both a sin and a crime. And yes, in fact, the confessional would be the appropriate venue for rectifying
0: that. Okay. Appreciate that. And uh, thanks so much for your, for your email and your $50 word. How about that? It's called a communion here on EWTN. Don't forget, later on this afternoon, it's Cresta in the afternoon. That's coming up 4 p.m. Eastern. Great show. Al and his guests talk about not only today's news, but also the things that matter most. That's why it's such an important program check it out cresta in the afternoon coming up later today 4 p.m eastern on EWTM hey, radio yes sir. Well I've,
1: well I've got you the i just looked it up the catholic encyclopedia has a, a much better and historical analysis of abjuration of heresy oh really yeah so if you just check out the catholic encyclopedia you'll find it there
0: you go hope that's uh, helpful for for everybody here's an email now from audrey in plano texas in the dallas fort worth metroplex audrey says hi dr anders I have a brother who is a cradle Catholic, but is now a Pentecostal. I am a returning Catholic. I've been learning so much about our faith through your show, but I can't seem to have a productive conversation with my brother. He tells me that outside the church, he has a, quote, real relationship with Jesus and that following the Catholic faith is, quote, being under the spirit of religion. He also goes on about baptism in the Holy Spirit, which he explains is the main part of the gospel, and if we aren't baptized in the Holy Spirit, we aren't really saved. Well, how does all this fit into Catholicism, and how do I explain to him that Catholics experience the Holy Spirit as well? Thanks. Enjoy learning so much for your show. from your show, Audrey in Plano, Texas. Yeah,
1: thank you so much. So, Audrey, there's a book you might want to read. It's not by a Catholic author. It's by a, a secular uh, author um, who I think is— probably agnostic on the religious question. Um, it's an anthropologist out of Stanford. Her name is Tanya Lorman, L-U-H-R-M-A-N. And the title of the book is uh, When God Talks Back, Understanding the Evangelical Relationship to God. And it is an anthropological study of a charismatic, not explicitly Pentecostal, but a charismatic community um, in Southern California, or was it maybe Chicago? I take that back. Where, uh, where the participants regularly cultivated the idea that God verbally communicated to them. And, and it's an anthropologist's look at the question, how is it that men and women in the 21st century could routinely be brought to believe that the impressions or thoughts or images or feelings that arose in their mind could reliably be distinguished as the voice of God talking to them? And it's a fascinating anthropological study of that question. Um and uh, but I pointed out to you because this this conception of what it means to have a relationship with God, namely that one is involved in a sort of a, a, a sensorial, rich, um, deeply emotionally felt and perhaps even even verbal dialogue with the Spirit of God, is just what it means for many of our contemporaries to have a relationship to Jesus. Now most Catholics don't claim, for example, that, You know that Jesus told them, uh, say what to order at the restaurant, or or you know what what model car to buy, um, or what job to take, or who to marry, or or you know any any number of things like that. Even even less would they make the claim that. uh, Just me personally, I I, David, I was in the airport recently, traveling uh, to give a talk, and I overheard uh, two men that were standing in line to buy a cup of coffee, and they had guitars, and I. You know, I'm always kinda of interested in people who play music sure. so I was sort of sidled up next to them to get my coffee and I heard one say to the other, um, Well, you know, I you know, we were playing at this show and, and the Lord laid this song upon my heart. And I thought, Oh, I know who these guys are. They're Protestant worship leaders and they're off they're off to, to play a gig someplace. And so I struck up a conversation about where they were gonna go play and what church and so forth. But the claim, Oh, God laid this song on my heart, well, it's kind of a if you think about it for a minute, it's kind of a bold claim. It's it's the claim that one of them made that that he was in the midst of a of a concert performing music and that he had a deep inclination a strong intuition that he should play a particular song and he credited that intuition to the movement of the holy spirit but that's a pretty bold claim yeah you know um but that sense kind of immediacy that that my my thoughts my impressions voices in my head desires emotional responses are the way that God communicates to me regularly and reliably, is a big part of what Pentecostalism is about. And so someone who has grown up, say, in a liturgical or devotional tradition like the Catholic faith, that has a different way of understanding relationship with Jesus, when they step into that modality and they and their community tells them, you need to cultivate this very deeply felt sense of God's immediacy, that's what a relationship with God is then by contrast, Catholicism might seem dull, empty, vapid, boring, uh, because, because Catholics, by and large, don't encourage you to generate that kind of, uh, of interior spirituality. We have mm. a different understanding of what relationship with Jesus means. Now, let me talk to you about why I think their view is problematic, why I think the Catholic view makes a lot more sense, biblically, historically, and philosophically. Catholics absolutely have a relationship to Jesus— we have a relationship to Jesus, but our relationship with Jesus does not require that we imagine that Jesus speaks to us verbally or through impressions or emotions on a regular basis. Rather, how does Christ communicate to us? First of all, Christ has left us his word, and the command that he gave to his apostles was go into all nations and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. He didn't say go into all nations and teach them to hear voices, He said, go into all nations and teach them to obey what I've commanded you. And so, first and foremost, Catholics relate to Jesus by obeying his commands. And we have his commands in Scripture and handed down to us by the church through sacred tradition. Mm -hmm. So, you can hear all the voices you want to hear. But if you're not obeying the commands of Christ, then that relationship that you claim to have is of no value. Um, We also relate to Christ by imitating his example. Christ said, if you want to be my disciples, you have to take up your cross and follow me. This is what I did. You have to do the same. The teacher is not above his master, right? Uh, St. Peter writes that Christ died on the cross, leaving us an example that we should follow. And so Catholics want to relate to Christ by following his example. We want to uh, have table fellowship with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes like he did. We want to reach out to the poor and the marginalized like he did. We want to make our lives an offering the way he did, loving sacrificially, perhaps even unto death as he did. That is a way of relating to Christ, relating to him through his example, through his teaching. Then there's another way Catholics relate to Christ, and that is we want to relate to Christ by recapitulating his divine personality. What I mean by that is that we, want, we don't just want to mechanically obey, uh, follow his example or obey his commands. We want to transform our personalities so that we come to see the world through Christ's eyes so that what he values we value you know when you marry someone and you love them and you live with them for a long time eventually you don't just know what your wife wants you want it too on her behalf sure and we we want to come to have that kind of intimacy with jesus where if christ values something we also value it if christ assesses a situation in a certain way we want to have the same assessment to be able to form the same judgment Um, Pope Francis writes in his encyclical, Lumen Fide, that we want to come see the world through Christ's eyes. St. Paul writes about this in his epistles when he speaks about having the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, for example, he speaks about having the mind of Christ given to us by the Holy Spirit. That is a very intimate way of relating to Jesus. But again, it doesn't require that I hear a voice. It doesn't require that I respond to an emotional impression. It's a shift in one's mode of vision, of one's personality. And and effecting that shift in personality is one of the things that the sacraments of the Church are meant to inculcate. See, the sacraments are ritual, symbolic demonstrations of the kind of life that Christ lived. The Eucharist being the preeminent example because it's an act of sacrifice, mm-hmm. where we see the body and blood of Christ separated before us on the altar, and we come to embody that form of self-sacrifice and and, and ritualize it, impressing it upon our personalities. All the sacraments have that effect, or say the sacrament of penance, where I routinely uh, attempt to divorce myself of everything that, that contaminates flesh and spirit out of reverence for God, and to start over and over and over again through acts of penance and contrition and purification, right? These are powerful means of transforming the personality. All of them imply profound interior relationship with God. None of them require reliance upon dreams or visions or voices or impressions or, or powerful emotions, those sorts of things that characterize Pentecostalism. Right? So, again, we do have a powerful relationship with Jesus. Now, the, the Pentecostal view, I think, is very problematic. I think it's extremely problematic because uh, it, it opens one up uh, powerfully to, um, to suggestion, uh, to subjectivism, and to various forms of manipulation— I can't tell you the number of occasions that I have seen or even witnessed in my own life, uh, attempts to follow that Pentecostal form of spirituality that lead to neuroticism and fanaticism and to deep harm to relationships and people's material and social and psychological welfare. Mm, yeah. um, I read a study about a year ago investigating what, if any, relationship there was between denomination and mental health. And it, it didn't make much difference which Christian denomination you belonged to, um, the mental health figures were more or less the same, with one exception, and that was that pr- practitioners of Pentecostalism and Charismatic traditions were reliably more neurotic than other forms of Christianity. And it's, it's understandable that they would be more neurotic, because it's a tradition that, that, that advocates, that evokes, that seeks to inculcate high levels of emotionality as the index of one's personal spirituality. And since neuroticism is, by definition, a a greater tendency to negative emotion, when you're seeking to cultivate a spirituality that provokes emotional outburst, it stands to reason that it would lead to or or could perhaps invite various forms of emotional psychological imbalance. Um, It also opens up people to gross forms of manipulation, Mm -hmm. because if you believe that God acts primarily through these kinds of impressions— um, you know, strong emotions, uh, uh, pictures that appear in the mind, that kind of thing, then then someone can claim to be a kind of expert, and that happens all the time in Pentecostalism. They would call it, uh, well, so-and-so moves in the gifts. When I used to sojourn in Pentecostalism, occasionally a, a, a evangelist would come by and the church would say, oh, well, this guy moves in the gifts, you know, which meant that he, had, he was skillful at evoking those kinds of emotional responses in others and made extraordinary claims about his own abilities to, say, know the mind of God or to respond to prophecy or prophetic inspiration. And once you cede your rationality and your intellect and your judgment to a charismatic leader like that, um, well, you've 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 seated your only defense against irrationality yeah and so that that leads to you know financial exploitation can lead to sexual exploitation uh, can lead to the cult of personality uh, can lead to all kinds of negative outcomes
0: Audrey thanks so much uh, for your email this one from Ishmael who says dr. Anders I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who made some derogatory comments about the Bible I could tell he had some false perceptions about it What book or books do you recommend that I could give him to plant the seeds to put him on a path to dismiss these false perceptions? Thanks, Ishmael.
1: Yeah, thanks, Ishmael. Well, it's not clear to me that his perceptions are false, right? And what I mean by that is that taken at face value, there are passages of the Bible that are profoundly disturbing. And every Catholic interpreter for 2,000 years has recognized that. Um, You can read the Church Fathers like Augustine or Origen or Gregory of Nyssa. And they all speak very openly about what we'll call them the dark passages of the Old Testament, where things like uh, slavery or genocide or sexual violence um, are, are either glossed or in some cases even seem to be condoned. And so it's, it's, that's not for no reason that atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or Daniel Dennett and Christopher Hitchens recoil at the plain sense of the Old Testament. Um, what you need to know is that the Catholic tradition has for a very long time said that taking the Old Testament at face value like that is the wrong way of reading the Old Testament. Um, So uh, Pope Benedict uh, promulgated an apostolic exhortation called Verbum Domini of the Word of the Lord uh, that discusses in particular uh, our approach to the quote-unquote dark passages of the Old Testament. Uh, There's a monograph on the topic that I highly recommend by Matthew Ramage, who's a Catholic theologian out of um, Benedictine University in Kansas. And it's simply titled uh, The Dark Passages of the Old Testament. Okay. And applies Pope Benedict's hermeneutic to those
0: uh, to those particular texts. So I would that's where I would go is uh, Ramage's book. Ishmael, thanks so much uh, for your email. Glad we could get to a whole bunch of emails on today's edition of Call to Communion. Dr. David Anders, have a very happy New Year, and thanks so much. Well, thank you, Tom. Appreciate that. We're back with another live show a little bit later on this week right here on EWTN Radio. We do this program Monday through Friday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. So do check out uh, the program. Check out the podcast, if you wish, by going to EWTN.com slash radio. Then look for the words podcast central. That's all you have to do. EWTN.com slash radio. On behalf of our producer, Charles Beery, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Have a blessed 2024. We'll see you next time. God bless.